Hey church, it's Easter. All right, full disclosure, we're filming this before Easter. So if you're seeing this, it can mean only one of two things. One, Jesus has not come back. Or two, the pandemic has us all still at home. And I hate that. When this started, I thought, surely we'll be back by April. And then I thought, okay, surely we'll be back by Easter. But we are not back yet, and I hate that. But I'm glad that you're tuned in with us this morning from wherever you are. You know my favorite thing about Easter? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not the pastel colors. My mom, for as long as I can remember, has always dressed me in pastels on Easter. In fact, I think you're going to see a picture up in just a minute. Uh, Pastels are not my favorite thing about Easter, I'll admit it. Here's my favorite thing about Easter. It's when we come together on Easter morning that we look at each other and we say, one of us will say, He is risen. And the other one will reply, he is risen indeed. It's like the the secret handshake of Christians. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And oh, I wish that we were together to say that in unison right now with one another. I wish that really badly. But here's the truth. Just because we're not together does not mean that Jesus is still in that tomb. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so what does that mean for you and me? What does resurrection mean? When when a Christian says that there was a man, Jesus, who we believe to be the Son of God, who died on a Roman cross on a Friday and was raised again in new life on Sunday, what does that mean for you and me? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in John 20. I'm going to read the resurrection scene to you. It's a longer passage than I would normally read in one sitting, but this is the the centerpiece of our faith. So, So hang in and read along with me, starting in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, probably John, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and, and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me. 
for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. My old friend John Rushing made the best scrambled eggs. <laughs> my dad and I would go with John and some other old timers down to this ranch in South Texas where this double wide trailer was being converted into a space big enough to house a couple of little guys. And there was these bunk beds that we would bunk on. And every morning while it was still dark, John Rushing would get up, he'd put coffee on the pot, he'd fry some bacon, some biscuits, and make those scrambled eggs. John was probably in his mid to late 80s, and I was 10 or 11. He was well older than me, but I loved to be with Mr. John. He had a habit of smoking a pipe. Now, in my house, smoking a pipe was strictly forbidden, and I, frankly, I think it was forbidden in John's house too by Mrs. Ruth, but when we were at the ranch, John smoked a pipe, and I, I kind of grew to like it. It might have been what made those eggs taste so good. John came to all my Little League baseball games. My grandparents lived far away. It wasn't easy for them to travel. And so John came to every game. And he'd sit in the stands and he would watch me. And he wouldn't holler or fuss like a lot of parents do these days. He'd just sit there quietly. But after I made a play, I'd always look up at Mr. John and he'd nod at me, kind of grin, maybe wink an eye. And I knew he loved me, cared about me. I was in middle school when John got sick and passed. It was the first time I was a pallbearer in a funeral. And I was terrified. I remember just being consumed by this irrational fear that I would drop his casket, my friend John's casket. I was shaking with the fear beforehand and crying. And I'll never forget Miss Ruth, John's wife. She comes up to me, and she takes my hands in her hands, and she says, Eric, I know you miss him. I do too. But it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I do miss him. I still miss him. In fact, our youngest deacon, Rush, is named after Mr. John Rushing. I really do miss him. Death feels paralyzingly final, doesn't it? I've talked before about the prison Bible class I'm a part of it on Wednesdays at Shelby County Corrections. And every time I go out there, I ask those guys, each time we get a new class of guys, I ask them, what's, what's the one place you most long to go to when you get out of here? And you know what the answer is I get most? This is the answer. I want to visit my mama or my grandmama's grave. I want to visit their grave. You know, these guys in the prison, they live with this constant guilt and regret about time that they are losing with people that they love. And they feel the burden of that. They know they're responsible for that. But the, but the, but the burden of losing somebody you love and not being there for it, it haunts those guys every day. And right now, it's really hard not to think of death. <laughs> with the coronavirus pandemic all around us, we're thinking about death constantly, which is a strange thing for us. One of the 
one of the really fascinating things about the modern world that we live in that is different than the world that so many lived in before us for generations and generations and generations is that now, unlike ever before, death has been removed from our lives. Yes, we all have people we love that will pass, but typically they pass at a hospital or on hospice care. And I'm so grateful for hospitals and for hospice care. Praise God for those things. But the effect of that good and great blessing is that it has removed death from our consciousness. In the past, people died at home painfully, but now death is something that happens somewhere else most of the time and something that's easy for us to go about our day in, day out lives and not think about. Out of sight, out of mind, we might say. But now, because of the coronavirus, death is, is pressing in around us. It's actually reaching in and, and interrupting our lives. And the numbers are staggering. Thousands of people have died. And so despite what we know to be true, Many of us live as though we are immortal, like we'll never die, like we don't have to think about death. And then comes a pandemic and suddenly we're thinking about, what would it mean if I died or someone I love died? C.S. Lewis wrote about this. If you're from Highland, you know I love C.S. Lewis. So I don't make any apologies for that. But he wrote in 1948 and he wrote about the atomic bomb. And this is what he said to people who were worried about the atomic bomb. He said this, Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Thanks for the uh, encouraging word, Mr. Lewis. <laughs> but he's right. You know, so many of us do live as though death is an impossibility and when some new terror or frightful germ or bomb is released or discussed, well, it makes us realize death is a certainty for all of us. And I hate that. I don't want death to have the last word. And I've shared this before with those at Highland and I'll share it again. When I go out to that prison Bible class, every time we get a new crop of guys, I ask them the same question because here's the deal. What I basically want is I want those guys for just a minute, for an hour and a half each week, I want them to pay attention to Jesus Christ. And most of these guys have heard the name Jesus Christ, but very few of them know much about him. And so I just want them for a minute to pay attention to what Jesus says and does for them. But to make that pitch, a simple pitch, I ask him this. I ask him the same couple questions. I say, what is it that stinks about prison? And they always come up with the same answers. They joke about how awful the food is. And the food is awful. They have these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And on one side, you have peanut butter, and it's brown. And on the other side, you have grape jelly, and it's brown, right? The food is, is awful in there. And they always joke about that. And I say, okay, okay, I get it. The food's bad. And then I ask him, tell me this, how many of you have lost somebody you love? <clears throat> and inevitably, 
every hand in the room goes up. And I ask them to tell me about the people they've lost. And many of them have lost mothers and grandmothers, but they've also lost brothers and sisters and friends. Some in shootings, some by overdoses, and some by cancer or traffic accidents. And I talk to him and I ask him, I say, tell me, as you think about that person you lost, what is it that stinks about death? And they always give me the same answer. Separation. Separation. And then I say, okay, let me ask you that first question again. What is it that stinks about prison? And then they don't hesitate and they don't joke. Separation, they say. And so then I say, you mean to tell me that it feels like death in here? And they nod. And I say, well, do you want to know about the only person who has ever beat death? Because I can tell you about him. And you'd be surprised. A lot of them want to know about Jesus. And the reason is because like C.S. Lewis said, they know, they're, they're fully aware that at the end of our life, each of us is heading for death. But they also know what some of us forget as we go about our daily lives in the free world. And that is that death isn't just a, just a stopping point at the end of our life, but death is a force. It's a, it's a power that reaches into our everyday life and disrupts our life causes all this brokenness and ruin around us that death reaches in and that we feel it even in life. And what they don't want is for death to have the last word. I don't want that either. I don't want that either. Let's go back to this scene here in John 20. You've got Mary Magdalene who discovers the empty tomb of Jesus. And she runs and she finds Peter and probably John and she tells them what she's discovered. And Peter and John go running towards the tomb. And let me suggest to you that at this moment, as they are running for the tomb, what they're looking for in that tomb is what you and I are most longing for. They are looking for clues to what you and I hope for more than we hope for anything else in this world. And that is that death will not have the last word. And so let's pick up there in John 20, starting in verse 6. We read this. As Peter looks in, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and he saw and believed. So Peter's looking in to this empty tomb. And here's the thing about Peter and John. Both of them had seen death overcome before. Their buddy Lazarus had been dead and Jesus had raised Lazarus from the death, from, from dead. But here's what we remember about Lazarus. And here's what Peter and John are certainly thinking. When Lazarus is raised from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ, he comes walking out like a mummy. He's wrapped in what we call the grave clothes or the clothes of death. If you've ever seen an Egyptian movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. They would wrap a body tightly bound with various clothes and linens. And inside of those linens would be spices that would prevent the body from smelling as the body decayed. And when Lazarus is raised from the dead, those grave clothes, those, those linens of death are still wrapped around him. So he doesn't come walking out 
of his tomb proudly. He comes walking out stumbling. So much so that Jesus has to tell those who are standing there, well, take off the grave clothes, let him go. Those wrappings still hanging from Lazarus confirmed something for Peter that he knew to be true. Surely, the moment he saw Lazarus, and that is that this man, his friend Lazarus, will die again. The death still clings to him. He's been spared for a moment, but ultimately, like the rest of us, death will have the last word for Lazarus. But now, Peter's staring into this tomb where three days ago his Savior and Lord Jesus was laid dead. And he looks into that tomb, and not only can he not find a body, but he sees there the clothes of death, and that they are folded up nicely and lying there, and there's no body to be found. And although he doesn't yet fully understand what he has seen, he knows one thing for sure, and that's this that death is never going to touch Jesus the Christ again. He has torn it off of himself. He has folded up those linens. He has patted them gently and he has walked away from them. Oh, I'm about to get worked up, church. I'm about to get worked up right here. If you're listening to this sermon and you don't know the Highland Church, let me tell you who we are. We are the ones that believe he is risen. We are the ones that believe by the power of God that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that the clothes of death were torn away from him. We are the ones who believe in Mary Magdalene who saw the risen Jesus. We're the ones who believe in the disciples who touched his hands and touched his side. We're the ones who believe in the hundreds of witnesses who saw the risen Jesus and were so sure they saw him, they were willing to die for what they had seen. And why were they willing to die? Because he is risen. And if he is risen, then death itself has been folded up neatly and put in the corner. They don't have to be afraid of it anymore. If he is risen, then death has lost its sting, as Paul says. If he is risen, then death doesn't get the final say. Death does not get the last word. If he's risen, I want to be on that team because every other team in this world is promising me nothing but empty things, a hollow life, a hopeless life, a sad life. I want to be on the team that wins. And at Highland, you know what we believe. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe that we've got the right strategies or the right protocol. We don't even know what we're doing. We're making this up as we go. You want to know what we believe? We believe so much in the risen Lord that we come together every week, even in the middle of the pandemic, because we know He is risen. He is risen indeed. Whew, Russ, calm me down. Calm me down. I'm getting worked up here. <laughs> Whew. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Here's what he means. Here's what he means. It's all about the resurrection. And if Jesus Christ was raised, then death does not have the last word. Not for Jesus, not for you, not for me, not for Mr. John rushing, not for those you have loved most and lost. If Jesus is raised, then those who are in Christ will be raised as well. I had a conversation with a really sharp young man a few weeks ago, just really sharp young man. And what I respected and appreciated about this young guy was that he longs to do what pleases God. But he's struggling with the idea of Jesus. He doesn't know whether he believes in Jesus, who Jesus claimed to be as the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. He just doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And we talked about that for a while, and I could tell that I wasn't saying the magic words that would equal belief for him. And so I told him, I said, listen, bud, it's the resurrection. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I said, here's what you owe to yourself. You need to spend as much time as you can trying to decide for yourself if you believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be true. And I'll tell you, I do believe it. And I'm part of a church that is filled with people who believe it and are giving their lives in the service of that risen Lord. But I can't make you believe. But I'll tell you, if you come to the point where you are convinced by the evidence or by the conviction in your heart and soul that Jesus was raised, then there's no more question marks. He's the exclamation point on every argument and every decision you're gonna make for the rest of your life, if he is raised, then that changes everything, I told him. Our door here at the church building buzzed the other day. This was just before the shelter in place restrictions went into place. And I look out there, it's the end of the day, and you know who it is at the door? It's my buddy, John Elliott, John Elliott. A couple years ago, John lost his lovely wife, Judith. And if ever there has been a man who loved his wife, it was John Elliott. He loved Judith so much. And as I saw him there at the door buzzing to get in, I thought of that moment when I saw him at the bedside of Judith. She was nearing the end and he was gripping her hand in his. He was leaning over her. I remember this tremor in his cheeks. She was nearing her end. And I opened the door for John and he walks in. I'm like, John, what are you, what are you doing here, brother? And he said, oh, I've come to give you my, my contribution check. You know, this whole thing of online worship and stuff. It's all new to me. I can't quite figure it out, but I wanted to bring this check to you guys. I'm like, John, what are you doing? You need to be, you need to be at home, man. He said, no, no, I've, I've got to do this. And I knew in that moment, this isn't about contribution. I knew in that moment that the reason John is still here and the reason John is still giving, the reason John's still investing himself in this place, in the body of Christ, is because we are the people who believe in what he 
hopes most in. We are those who hold tightly to his only hope, and that is that death will not have the last word. That Jesus is the exclamation point on every concern and worry we've ever had, that he responds to those in triumphant resurrection, that because of that, John will see Judith again. Death will not have the last word. And John knows that this is the place, that these are the people whose lives are marked by that confident hope. And so he's here. And I'm really looking forward, church, to that moment when we come back together. And I get to look at you and you at me. And I get to look at John. And we'll look at each other and we'll kind of grin. And we'll nod. And we'll know. We'll just know that he is risen. He is risen indeed.